Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 22nd of February, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands and our very own Debbie Evans, nursing correspondent. Well, we're going to kick straight off with today's news by having a little look at uh, President Putin. Of course, he gave his uh, speech to the nation yesterday, and this has produced a storm in the Western press. Chosen a little bit of it, but we're going to try to take you through why his speech was so important. And I may astonish our viewers and listeners today by recommending they listen to the full two hours and 10 minutes of that speech. But let's have a look at uh, The Sun, because this was a classic. Um, apparently, this was a deranged speech that he gave. He was uh, sticking to a script. He was holding on to the lectern with uh, one hand. He was standing on his own. He was speaking quickly and he was making wild hand gestures. Gestures. Well, if you were actually watching the speech, you'll have seen him talking at a perfectly reasonable pace. He knew his detail. Um, he was giving a very personal delivery to his audience and he was very, very calm and very measured. So we might wonder um, why the uh, Western press getting so excited. And we'll come on to that in a minute. But uh, let's have a look about uh, some of the reporting because a lot of the reports have been very quick to uh, <clears throat> say, well, never mind that uh, President Putin spoke for uh, two hours and 10 minutes in great detail about the state of the Russian nation. You really need to pay attention to this elderly gentleman, Biden, and uh, the son here pointing at his uh, video clip uh, for what he had to say after he got back from Kiev. So let's have a look at the great Biden speaking, if we may. President Duda, Prime Minister, Mr. Prime Minister, Mr. Mayor, to all the former ministers and presidents, as well as mayors and Polish political leaders from all across the country, thank you for welcoming back to Poland. You know, it was nearly one year ago, nearly one year ago, I spoke at the Royal Castle here in Warsaw, just weeks after Vladimir Putin had unleashed his murderous assault on Ukraine. The largest land war in Europe since World War II had begun. And the principles that have been the cornerstone of peace, prosperity, and stability on this planet for more than 75 years were at risk of being shattered. One year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. Well, I just come from a visit to Kyiv, and I can report Kyiv stands strong. Kyiv stands proud, it stands tall, and most important, it stands free. Well, there we are, clearly deranged. If you noticed, he was holding on to that lectern pretty tightly. He was using hand gestures and, uh, it, well... Well, he was standing alone as well, wasn't he? He was standing alone. And, and he may not have had a notepad, but he certainly had an autocue. Yeah, it was a bit, bit of a rant. And you'll notice that one couple in the audience just decided to leave. Well, let's follow things along because the BBC said they could deal with Putin's two-hour, ten-minute speech. Um, and compare it to uh, Biden in under a minute. So let's look at how the BBC did that. 
two presidents, two speeches and two very different views of the world. Let's take a look at them side by side. President Putin chose this war. Я хочу это повторить. Это они развязали войну, а мы использовали силу и используем, чтобы ее остановить. Just days away from the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, these two leaders are trying to shape the world's view of the conflict. Stand up for the right of people to live free from naked aggression. We stand up for democracy. Запад использует Украину и как таран против России и как полигон. So what does this tell us? It tells us that this is not going to end anytime soon, and it could get worse. Перевести локальный конфликт в фазу глобального противостояния. He could end the war with a word. Um, Alex, I'm just going to come over to you for the moment because I am at the point where every time I think I can understand how bad the BBC is, it produces something which is even worse. And I, I just regard this as, how, how do you describe this style of reporting? There's no real comment on what Putin said. And this is clearly an attempt to uh, just distract the public away from it. I would call it either anodyne or inane, depending on what uh, frame of mind you're in. Anodyne is, you know, a bland tasting and inane is making no intellectual points whatsoever. Somewhere between those two points along the scale. Richard Galpin used to be known for better reporting than this. So even the more established BBC talking heads seem to be pulled down uh, into this lowest common denominator of which big man is to be believed. The BBC used to do orders of magnitude better than this, even within my not very long living memory. OK, thank you for that, Alex. Yeah, it, it seems to me that the BBC simply does not know how to deal with Putin. And so they're just now raking around at the bottom of the barrel to see how they can produce some sort of media report on it. But this was one of their other reports. BBC News, Putin promotes Russian escalation in the annual speech. Well, what were they focusing on? They were focusing on the end of his speech where he said he was going to withdraw from the nuclear arms treaty. But uh, I ask a question here. Was this the substance of his talk that is really causing the furore? And I don't think it is. I think this is a distraction. Now, one of the um, uh, reporting channels we've mentioned uh, many times because they're putting out some really good work is the Duran. And um, I'm just going to draw our viewers and listeners to this clip from the Duran where Alexander Mercurius is talking about Putin's speech and he says something interesting. Let's have a listen. There was also, of course, again, parts of the speech which distinguish Russia from the West. He talks about, he talked a lot about social policies and all kinds of policies there. We have to be very careful what we say here. But again, his point was, to us, this is unpleasant, it's ugly, we don't want to have anything to do with it in Russia. If people in the West want to do it, that's their business. But don't try and bring it to us. So the key bit that uh, caught my attention was, here was Alex Mercurius saying, we, he's talking about the Duran, we have to be very careful in what we say about this. So um, 
of the Durand going out on YouTube, of course, but uh, I was fascinated. What was it that was so critical he dare not speak about it? Well, there was only one way to deal with this problem, and that was to listen to the full two hours and 10 minutes of the address, which I did. If uh, viewers and listeners want to do that, and I encourage people to do it, to be fully informed, uh, one of the places you can go to um, to listen to a translation of the speech is uh, I Earl Grey's uh, website because he does some really excellent commentary from Russia. But this is the element that I think has caused all the problem with the West. And it was in the opening of Putin's speech. Nobody wants to talk about it. It's so sensitive, apparently, that the Duran dare not mention it on YouTube. So let's have a look. He started off by saying this is a fight for the survival of Russia. This is an attack on our youth and culture, our people, the Russian Orthodox Church. It is destroying family and cultural identity, perversions with children, paedophiles, same-sex weddings. People can live as they want, but we want to say that they should take a look at scriptures of any religion family is the union between woman and man. The C of E wants to create a gender neutral God. Forgive them, they do not know what they're doing. They, and he's absolutely talking about the West, are being led to spiritual madness. Now, Alex, this I think is the root of the problem for the West because Putin is holding up a mirror and he is reflecting back to the West the very policies that are being used to destroy society inside UK, inside the USA, inside Europe. And in fact, later on in the speech, he gave specific warnings uh, to people in the West that this is happening around you and you simply don't see it. So what are your thoughts on this? That Putin here is saying only the same as the whole senior generation of conservative Anglican clerics, and not just, as I think you're about to move on to, those in the developing world, the sub-Saharan African Anglican uh, provinces. No, uh, Australians, uh, Scottish and American Episcopalians, uh, English Anglican scholars have been saying the same, uh, breaking down in tears in interviews, making the very same points. Uh, of course, the Russian Orthodox Church regards itself as one of the historic or magisterial denominations, which although it maintains it's the only true denomination, of course, uh, or the Greek family, as it says, it regards has regarded the Anglicans, just as the Roman Catholic Church has for a long time, as on a par with itself uh, in its claim to tradition. Uh, the Russian Orthodox Church used to resist strongly Westerners who wished to convert, who were attracted to Russian Orthodox spirituality, and they were told, no, stay in your Anglican tradition because it's equally valid. Now from both uh, President Putin and from a, a range of Anglican clerics, the Rubicon has been crossed and people are saying, I cannot worship in that church because it doesn't even know what God is. So th this is nothing related only to Russia or to uh, the Russian leadership. It's common across the Slavic world. Uh, the very same people who are now fiercely anti-Russia in the Ukraine war are very keen that their children should not be schooled in what's often called Anglo-Swedish sexual degeneracy. This is a common talking point anywhere east of Vienna. OK, Alex, thank you for that. Well, just to uh, emphasise the point on the Church of England, and you're aware of this one, of course, the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, has been toppled from the head of the global Anglicans. Um, this is largely over same-sex couples in the church, but particularly a rebellion from within Africa. Um, 
a whole debate to be had about this particular subject, but I found it fascinating that this also hit the headlines yesterday. So just to finish this section in the speech, Putin went on to say, we will protect our children. The West will try to divide us and to profit from the troubles. Traitors, those that undermine, sorry, that should be undermine us. We will not extract revenge. Russian people will give a moral response to these actions. And what he's talking about, he explains later because he's pointing a finger at Russians who ran off to get in bed with the West in order to create their big uh, businesses and make vast profits. And in a very calm way, he was in fact mocking these people because the West has now stolen their assets. But the overall speech, I am going to encourage people to watch and listen to in full because he covers every aspect of Russian society, talking about industry, he's talking about uh, universities, children, families, uh, he's talking about the transport system, and he is detailing what has been done and what the plans are in order to make Russia fully self-sufficient on Russian people and the facilities um, and uh, reserves within Russia. It's a fascinating talk. This does not mean we are saying that uh, Putin is a saint, but if you listen to this talk, reflect on what you see the politicians in the West talking about what they're peddling to the population of the West and how certainly politicians in Europe, the UK and the US are attacking children and families and women. Watch and listen to that talk. It's fascinating. Okay, so in parallel with that, then there was some activity going on in the uh, Security Council. Uh, let's bring it on screen. Uh, so this was all about the Nord Stream pipeline sabotage. Uh, the uh, Russian delegation to the UN uh, issued a draft resolution on the 17th of February. It was discussed yesterday. And I'm just very uh, briefly going to run through what Vasily uh, Nebenzia said uh, and also what the British response to it was. Uh, so here we go. Today we've gathered here for a very remarkable meeting. It's somewhat assonant with the previous meeting regarding the act of sabotage against the Nord Stream pipeline that we called on September th on the 30th of September last year. Yet this meeting is completely different in its tone. Uh, US leadership made some statements which boiled down to one message. If Russia kept doing what the United States does not like, the Nord Stream would be destroyed. Uh, then, rather inopportunely, former Minister of Poland, Sikorsky, who clearly knew something, got in the spotlight, having thanked the United States on social media. Uh, add to this a rather indiscreet text message by former head of the British government, Liz Truss, who is also known for her fierce hatred uh, to my country. Uh, yet formally, the United States strongly denied its involvement, realising pr uh, prospective consequences of such sabotage of critical international pipeline infrastructure. They still do, by the way. Uh, since then, the malevolence, he said, of Washington's officials has increased, not in the least thanks to another famous Russophobe, godmother of the anti-constitutional coup in Ukraine, Victoria Nuland. Uh, the thing is that on 8th of February, thanks to a prominent American investigative journalist and Pulitzer Prize winner Seymour Hirsch, Hirsch we, do, we not only learned the who's, uh, but also the how's. Uh, as you know, we put forward a draft UNSC resolution that tasks the Secretary General to carry out an independent international investigation and double check the facts that Seymour Hersh and other independent journalists cite. Uh, unfortunately, there's no way for us to attain the truth. Uh, those so-called investigations by Scandinavian states and Germany 
not only lack transparency, but, and this has become obvious by now, are aimed at covering up the tracks and uh, exculpating uh, the big American brother. Uh, he went on, if our American colleagues indeed have nothing to fear, uh, and if they've no doubt that their fellow citizen was all wrong, uh, then the US does not risk anything by allowing this uh, investigation to take place, uh, of which we will soon be able to make sure. So that was uh, basically the Russian position on this. Uh, the UK position was expressed by uh, Thomas Phipps, uh, who's from the UK mission of the United Nations. And he said this, President, the UK condemns the acts of sabotage targeting the Nord Stream pipeline. However, it's not clear to us why five months on Russia is suddenly pursuing this issue here with such urgency. I would have thought it was very clear. But anyway, uh, he goes on. Uh, we welcome the letter from Denmark, Sweden and Germany informing UN member states that uh, investigations are ongoing. The UK fully supports these technical investigations led by competent national authorities and awaits their findings. Uh, the basis for these new accusations in an article by an American journalist that cites only a single secret source and is, it's no surprise the Russian ambassador chose not to dwell on the details as these details have been comprehensively debunked already by, and what he means there is the uh, effectively the information industrial complex of fact checkers and mainstream media absolutely in the pockets of the British and American government. But anyway, he said uh, debunked already by other journalists, including on the basis of very straightforward open source fact checking. Uh, it's therefore our view that the real reason for Russia's urgency today is a desperate des desire to distract attention one year on from the start of this, of its full scale invasion of Ukraine. Um, so uh, Alex, just before we move on on this, uh, what are your thoughts on, on both the Russian statement and the British response? Um, first of all, Nibinzia sounds uh, 50 years more mature than uh, his uh, British counterpart, who isn't even the permanent uh, representative, but a junior. And uh, secondly, what would I say? Uh, naughty Seymour Hirsch, to have carefully timed his uh, expose, breathlessly publishing it just before the anniversary of the outbreak of war, uh, so that he could uh, you know, then, then provide the Russians with this sort. Very naughty of him. I noticed that continental reporters, uh, the kind of left of centre re reflective of mainstream media opinion uh, titles, uh, which for decades have been worshipping the ground on which Seymour Hersh stood for being the original uh, uh, expose journalist who brought down a nasty right-wing government. Those titles all of a sudden have editorialized to their readers that, if, for example, in the German press, um, Hersh is now described as umstritten, controversial, and a mere blogger. Uh, let's just write out of history that uh, he, he, he was the best-known publisher of a whistleblower of all time and has been taught in journalist school for half a century on that basis. No, he's a controversial blogger. Um, I think the Norwegians as well is quite important. The Norwegians were not in that group of countries, Germany and Scandinavian countries, talking to the UN because, of, her, of course, Hirsch and his sources were not a single source, by the way, fingered the Norwegians. Now I'm beginning to understand why some of our German viewers tipped us off just after the explosion and said, are you aware that there are direct pipelines from Norway to Germany, which stands to gain greatly uh, with Nord Stream out of action? Yes, okay, thank you very much. Uh, now let's uh, move on to the world of sport then. And of course, keeping the pressure on the uh, Russian Federation, uh, a statement released by the British government, the Department for Culture, Media and Sport on Russia's war in Ukraine and international sport. It was updated yesterday. Uh, and uh, well, basically what this is about is 30 countries, uh, mostly European, United States, Canada, Australia, these types of countries, Five Eyes countries, uh, most of the nations of the developing sector are not on board with this. 
So, you know, uh, whatever 160, whatever countries we have in the world, 30 of them have signed up to this idea that Russia should uh, continue to be uh, removed from international sport. Uh, however, Russia and Belarus, well, they're including Belarus now as well. In Russia and Belarus, this statement says sport and politics are closely intertwined. We have strong concerns of how feasible it is for Russian and Belarusian Olympic athletes to compete as neutrals under the IOC's uh, conditions of no identification with their country when they are directly and funded and supported by their states. Uh, the strong links and affiliations between Russian athletes and the Russian military are also of clear concern, they say. Our collective approach uh, throughout has therefore been one of discrimination simply on the basis of nationality. These strong concerns need to be dealt with by the AOC. As long as these fundamental issues and the substantial lack of clarity and concrete detail on a workable neutrality model are not addressed, we don't, do not agree that the Russian and Belarusian uh, athletes should be allowed to back into competition. So that, 30 countries signed up to this, including the United Kingdom. Uh, but as the Financial Times reported, uh, this is uh, talking about the Munich Security Conference at the beginning of the week. Uh, but basically, they're complaining that Western pleas over Ukraine failed to sway African and South American leaders. So the Global South is basically aligning itself with Russia and China. Uh, they're not buying into this uh, Ukraine conflict. Uh, so the uh, report here says Western officials said bilateral meetings on the conference sidelines revealed a much greater preoccupation with issues such as inflation, debt, higher energy prices and food security than with the war in Ukraine. I mean, imagine, can you imagine that countries would worry about inflation, debt, higher energy prices and food security rather than something which is, first of all, has nothing to do with them. And second and of is all, remote. Is re well, uh, and why, would, why on earth when they're dealing with those issues, uh, would they be sending or contributing to, to the flows of weapons into Ukraine? It's insane. But anyway, uh, there's also a lingering re resentment, the FT says, they said, over the West disappointing record on sharing coronavirus vaccines. Well, perhaps uh, that, that's more uh, lucky for them than anything else. Uh, and compensation for damage caused by climate change. Yeah, OK. Well, anyway, uh, then uh, let's move on to this. And the question of whether the uh, West's military industrial complex is up to the task for, for, of the, the game they're trying to play here. So this is Bloomberg, Russia's war on Ukraine, China's rise, expose US military failings. Um, and they're basically saying that the, the West, they're talking about the fact that, that defense industry has been consolidated, at least US defense industry, from 70 prime contractors in 1990 to only five prime contractors now. They're talking about the insanity of the F-35, uh, which has been plagued by cost overrun, schedule delays, technological uh, failures, despite huge amounts uh, of money that are poured into them. They're making the point that uh, the US defense budget is bigger than the next 10 countries combined, and yet it's still failed. What they, they begin by saying, you know, basically the, uh, the war in Ukraine and the Chinese balloon issue have exposed the weaknesses in, in Western uh, military capability and in the, the ability to, to provide weapons. And the fact that uh, Ukraine is you know, getting rid of uh, years and years of military uh, armaments production in a few weeks, and we're never going to be able to replace that. So it's it's quite an incredible article in Bloomberg, and I do suggest people read it. But it it one of the things it absolutely does, uh, Alex, is to is to just demonstrate the insanity of the current war policy. Yes, I, who is arguing actually that there is any sanity in the current war policy? The rhetoric has entirely shifted to we must win this war because bad things will happen if we don't. There is very little, even among the 
most bellicose uh, of rhetoric uh, of orators at the moment uh, about the winnability of the war. Uh, those who either for legal or moral reasons believe in the just war theory, which was elaborated in great detail in the Middle Ages, which was again cited by uh, George Galloway uh, in facing off against uh, Tobias Elwood at the Oxford Union. I think we may play a clip of that in the coming episodes. But Galloway cited the just war theory enunciated by Thomas Aquinas and so many great thinkers and moral leaders. And one of the, the, the kingpins of that is that it's not a just war if you have no realistic chance of winning. You're just sending men and these days women to the slaughter at that point. So the, uh, the sanity of the policy is no longer really a matter of discourse. And while this has been going on, let's bring on screen something which, as usual, the conservative woman, or now just TCW, um, have led with. They often provide a lot more detail from the respectable few, the, the brave few British military officers and, and commentators than a lot of the rest of the press. Here they're carrying David Card, who's giving names on who it was who had a two-day meeting uh, in a, an Oxfordshire mansion uh, at the end of last week, uh, chaired by Lord Mandelson, who for uh, younger and overseas viewers was the eminence Greece who ran the Blair government and who's very, very suave with the European Union, with whom they used to be a commissioner. Uh, so the title of this piece is NATO Chief Plots with EU Rejoiners. Note the EU-NATO Marriage for Defence Policy. Here we have the list and the L's and R's in the margin refer to leavers and remainers, just to indicate that there's quite a, there's, there's no statistical difference here between those who voted in 2016 or advocated for Britain to leave and to remain. They're all united here by this desire to undo the defence effects of Brexit. Uh, Michael Gove, uh, Michael Howard, Gisela Stewart, David Lammy, who's very much, um, to quote the sun, uh, using wild hand gestures in his, in his speeches these days. Uh, Norman Lamont, and here's a key one, if you use the UK column search function, Angus Lapsley, uh, a, a very uh, well, to, uh, high up uh, Foreign Office and, Mon and Ministry of Defence civil servant, who's now NATO Assistant Secretary General, type Lapsley into the ukcolumn.org search function and you'll see some detailed reporting on his push five years ago with the EU military unification. Oliver Robbins, of course, uh, well known in the British press, Theresa May's former Brexit negotiator, and a couple of others. Chair of Jack Blackhoe Smith Klein, Sir Jonathan Simmons was in, maybe interesting to Debbie. So they were hobnobbing for a couple of days. And David Card writes that under the cover of unified European defence, the EU is relentlessly pushing, and I would just quibble with Card on details here, it's actually British pushers largely. The EU is re relentlessly pushing its ambition <clears throat> to make defence its competency. Don't think of the EU here, I would say. It's NATO, EU, Anglo-American defence industry. The whole idea of internationalising defence, just in the previous segment, has given an example of that. That's the core of it, not the EU in the narrow institutional sense. And you can read the rest here. You can see that the Tory grandees and the rejoiners who tend to be Labour, and of course Labour now thinks it's going to romp home in the next election and uh, uh, and win power, uh, win office in Britain, they're equally um, uh, assertive on this because, of course, their financial and moral or their, 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 their um, investment interests, their ideological interests converge in having Britain be uh, the, the apex of a, of a pan-Western pan military system. Uh, lesser coverage from the mid-market uh, press includes coverage in the Mail and the Express. So the Daily Mail uh, just uh, satisfied itself with a comment. The Express had a couple of pieces, one describing the fury of Tory MPs, because, of course, the Express is a Conservative Party supporting paper. 
and the second one having a Brexiteer warning, but David Card has already pulled the rug from under David Maddox's feet there, the political editor at the Express, because Card pointed out that there were as many Leavers as Remainers and as many Tory grandees as, as Labour internationalists in this meeting. Admittedly, it was Labour that, that uh, a Labour-allied civil service network which did the real damage in 2017-2018 by negotiating away everything in detail, even as we left PESCO formally. Uh, but that's, that's as maybe. And just not to be outdone, the world's most sinister and powerful think tank, uh, Britain's own Chatham House, uh, reports that we're getting towards 1940 again, a momentum for UK-France defence cooperation, which, of course, in the uh, days of the Battle of France, led to a British, not a French proposal, a British proposal for a union of states between Britain and France. So it's all happening there. Uh, is this all going to lead to uh, the total control that we fear? Perhaps not. Here's one data point on that. Sapo in Portugal is reporting that the Portuguese gendarmerie, of course, most continental countries have uh, a branch of the military that polices its domestic population. The Republican National Guard, or GNR, um, is uh, deploring uh, growing demotivation in the ranks. They can't go on strike. The tone is equally anti-public because the public are being nasty to them through COVID, but also anti-legislator and executive because the police are having now, as the spokesman says in this report, to uh, be experts in gender theory and uh, all kinds of human rights niceties. Uh, not the sarcastic version on the whole concept, but you understand, I think, what I mean. Uh, the, 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 home, the human rights framework and uh, this is making their job undoable. While this is going on, I'm getting reports from Portuguese viewers that members of that Portuguese uh, gendarmerie, the Republican National Guard, are now getting so badly paid that they're having to sell their vehicles, considering selling their houses. I'm hearing of gendarmes having to uh, remove their children from university and who are being paid then less than supermarkets check out people. Uh, that, that's what the state security of Western countries is depending on. That's the sharp end of this unified structure. Will there be enough people with enough motivation and pay uh, to enforce what the likes of Angus Lapsley and his coterie at Lord Mandelson's uh, jamboree wish to enforce upon us? Perhaps not, unless they want to put all their faith in robots and foreign conscripts. Yeah, OK. Could I, could I just uh, add to that, as I, I see your report there and everything done undercover, of course, that is the way that the whole of the negotiations and the setting up of the EU project were done from the beginning. The UK public deceived, even to the extent that at one stage letters were being written to the press, uh, pro-EU letters, uh, paid for out of slush funds from the EU itself. So. All of this is known throughout his time and uh, no change to the style of operation. Uh, now, uh, of course, in the meantime, uh, Syria continues to suffer. Uh, Vanessa will be on with us on Friday to talk a bit more about this. Uh, but last night, the Schiller Institute held an event which Vanessa Bailey took part in. It was called Syrian Sanctions Must Be Lifted. Uh, and uh, Richard Black, Colonel Richard Black, also uh, spoke at this event. If you want to watch it, and I urge everybody to watch this, in its entirety and to share it. There's the uh, YouTube link uh, at the bottom of the screen. Uh, I've just got a little bit, a little excerpt of video, one first bit from Vanessa and then Colonel Richard Black. I think uh, what I want to try and say tonight is that of course uh, the sanctions should be lifted and uh, effectively the Caesar law is one of the most criminal and vindictive uh, sanctions uh, package that has ever been used or weaponized against a sovereign nation. 
You mentioned that effectively it prevents any nation coming to the aid of Syria for rebuilding and reconstitution of the country into a, a workable territory again. But I don't feel personally, and I live in Syria, I've been living here, uh, this is my fourth year, I've been working here for seven years. For me, uh, the sanctions go hand in hand with the illegal occupation of this country on three uh, sectors of its borders. The only friendly border is with Lebanon, and we know that Lebanon also itself is under attack by the Anglosphere to further weaken it so that it's unable uh, or, or it's uh, not as capable of coming to the, the full aid of Syria during uh, this, this attempt to, to devastate and destroy Syria. And uh, there's another woman stand, laying on her side, her face streaming with blood. Uh, and then there's a third whose face doesn't show. Um, and there are two jihadists proudly parading, and the one has his boot stamped heavily on the back of the of the young red-headed woman and he's taking a selfie of himself they killed reportedly some 43 of the uh, of the women and children in alzar that day they kidnapped another 70 and sold them into sex slavery um, i received oral reports uh, that uh, they took the children in the village, that they tied them to the fence in the village, that they made them watch as they, uh, as they tortured and executed many of their parents. And afterwards, they went uh, to the children who were tied to the fence, sobbing, pleading, begging for mercy. They doused them with gasoline. They lit fire to them and they burned them to death. These are, this is the character of the people that we have supported. The United States and the West have supported these people throughout 11 years of war with our singular determination that we will topple the freest, most liberal nation in the Arab world. So that's a pretty horrendous, harrowing story at the end there. But, you know, Colonel Black has a lot of experience directly in Syria as well as Vanessa. I really urge people to, the other contributors in that event were Marwa Oswin, who's been on this program, but not for some time ago now. But nonetheless, I urge people to share that, particularly with your MPs, because they need to hear the comments of these people and they need to think about them these sanctions need to be lifted. And the fact of the matter is that none of the aid, which is go, which is the, the British government is claiming is going to the uh, Turkey-Syria earthquake relief is going into Syria. Uh, it is, uh, and any that is finding its way across the Turkish border into Idlib is being stolen by the people that Colonel Black is tolling, talking about. We need to challenge our government on this. Uh, and you know we see the same types of policies, the same types of propaganda that we saw in Syria in action in Ukraine now. So uh, the same types of policies are in action today. Uh, Alex, any thoughts briefly? Yes, um, difficult really to uh, give a measured reaction to such unspeakable things, but the, the number of atrocities that we've had reports of 
often with footage now, and Colonel Black is also describing here that not, not all of it's oral testimony, some of it is, is boastful footage by the perpetrators, that's getting out of hand, the, the, or rather uh, un uncountable numbers. Uh, it is now surely well known, even down to junior and desk officer level at the various agencies of government and the military in the West uh, and the think tanks who steer them, uh, what these uh, perpetrators are doing. Uh, they cannot hide behind any excuse. And once again, just war theory, that which has underpinned a thousand years uh, of warfare. Uh, do you have uh, a just cause? Uh, are you fighting in good faith? Uh, if not, then you're a, a warmonger. Uh, you're subject to the crime of aggression, which in fact brings us on to the next piece, because that's the trumped up charge against uh, this gentleman, uh, Heiner Bucher. You can see from the picture that this is a midsummer uh, event, uh, which has got Heiner Bucher into uh, trouble. He's a veteran of the anti-war hard left scene in Germany, which is particularly strong in Berlin, where this happened. Uh, you can see the banner there, 22nd of June, we shall not forget. This was the 81st anniversary of Operation Barbarossa. German aggression on Russia, of course, uh, or the Soviet Union, to be technically correct. Uh, a sympathetic report towards Bucher here describes uh, the 2,000 euro fine that he's got from the Berlin Magistrates Court, or Amtsgericht, as, quote, a muzzling verdict for an opponent of war. And in the, the banner line above that calls it criminalization of anti-militarism and describes him as a peace activist. In other pieces, he's been described as a Russlandversteher, or a man who seeks to understand Russia. And that's not just rhetoric, that is actually the crime um, uh, that's been, uh, he's been charged for. So during his, I won't read any of this, of course, but during his speech, people who read German can freeze it, he said that we must try to understand, this is in the middle of what's on screen, we must try to understand the grounds for the Russian uh, military special operation. He's using Russian terminology as a pro-Russian force. We must try to understand them. And personally, um, I am trying to follow, uh, he's doing the same as Brian, he says in this speech, I'm trying to follow uh, the president's, the Russian president's point of view as closely as I can. And I have no mistrust of Russia. I don't know whether Brian, for example, would go that far. But these are the points he made in the speech. Uh, what's the result? That Berlin uh, Magistrates Court accused him, if we bring that on screen, uh, of having approved of, zugestimmt, the uh, Russian invasion, and they misspelled Russia, in the magistrate's written verdict, Rusland should be Ruslan's, they, he, he, he understood Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine, which was contrary to international law, thereby, thereby uh, breaking uh, such and such number of the criminal code for the crime of aggression, which is, as we've reported before, a very notoriously vague term. Um, and towards the end of the uh, judgment, he was told that uh, what he said, given that there were Ukrainians knocking around in Germany, he, his words had the potential to shake people's faith in the security, in the, states, the certainty of law, and to uh, incite the psychological climate among the population. So he was frightening the horses, uh, which is what he got his, his verdict for. Uh, Jungerwelt uh, actually has the full text of that, so if people, it will be in the show notes too for those who read German, they can read what he actually wrote, uh, what he said at the memorial, which is a Soviet memorial where they gathered on the 22nd of June. This was uh, carried in January this year. This is the paragraph that got him into trouble, uh, just basically in, in a summary. I cannot understand that German policy is supporting the same Russophobic ideologies uh, that were the basis for Hitler's 1941 invasion, the point of meeting that day. And we must uh, uh, try to uh, oppose this nonsense uh, jointly. 2,000 euro fine. Okay, thank you, Alex. Um, 
Right, and then, uh, well, what is the situation with uh, the German judiciary then? Well, there's not much time to go into this now, but just to point out that Rainer Fulmich and colleagues, uh, judicial and, and lawyer colleagues, uh, in the, the new format that Fulmich has, ICIC, um, have this two-hour German discussion with excellent English subtitles. The particular case that they are deploring at the start of it uh, is that of the uh, Ukrainian Holocaust victim, actually, survivor, um, uh, who was told she was going to be compulsorily jabbed or COVID because she was not of mental capacity and how uh, strongly she resisted this. But conversation moves on to the catastrophic loss of judicial standards in Germany uh, and verdicts being written. A mild example is what we just saw with Heiner Bucher, um, verdicts being written by magistrates or even proper professional judges much higher up the tree who haven't really read the case documents properly and who are just issuing knee-jerk political uh, punishments. Yeah, okay. Uh, Alex, I'll just say it's interesting that in our chat box today at this particular point, many people are talking about thought crime and what they're saying is we can see this now happening around us. So I, I think it's becoming more and more clear what is actually taking place. And yeah, control of language leads to control of thoughts. Okay, uh, if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK column shop. Uh, any of this would be very much appreciated and needed, uh, but please do share material you find on the various platforms. Uh, and although we don't have the slide in it for today, just uh, remind everybody, of course, Stop the War Coalition meeting uh, outside the BBC on Saturday. So uh, uh, do go to that if possible. Yeah, excellent. Well, we're going to move on and uh, bring in Debbie Evans. Debbie, you're going to, you are going to go on to health, but uh, I think this is absolutely right. The Ohio disaster in America is uh, rousing more and more interest, partly due to the scale of the disaster itself, but also the American reaction. What have you got to uh, tell us? Yeah, well, thank you, Brian, for that. Yes, I am very concerned about this this story and looking at many videos on social media, there is no media presence in East Palestine. Now, this was a train derailment that happened on the February, February the 3rd. And just to put this into a little bit of context, this train was nearly two miles long. So it's a big, heavy train. Now, out of the out of the 150 cars, there were 20 that were full of hazardous materials. Out of those 20, 11 of them that were derailed contained um, vinyl chloride. Now, just as a matter of interest, vinyl chloride was used as a chemical weapon back in World War One. Now, this train apparently, it showed signs of fire 20 miles previously in Salem. It was caught on CCTV. But by the time, there's only three workers on the train. So by the time they got the alarm that something was wrong, they didn't have enough time to stop the train because it took so long to break because of the length and of the weight of it. And because the driver, because it's so long, the driver can't see around a bend. Now, immediately after it happened, the residents of East Palestine were evacuated. But they decided in their, well, the train company, which are Norfolk Southern Railway, and I think you might find the shareholders um, include BlackRock and Vanguard, um, but they decided that rather than let these containers explode and, and set on fire, they would do a controlled explosion. 
So we have a very serious health risk. Now, just very quickly before you go on to a couple more slides with some pictures, but Ohio's first, um, it's agriculture is its first industry. Uh, one in eight jobs are farming. 50% of the land is prime farmland and 13.9 million acres of farmland are in Ohio with 74,500 farms. Um, soya beans is their biggest crop. So this is a huge economy and globally this could impact many. So you can see the photographs and these are I've taken these from the independent the next couple of shots and you can see the train derailment there on the left and you can see what's in the water on the right already they're saying that there are severe health problems going on and there's a couple more shots that you'll see um, showing the explosion now there's one shot on social media that i've seen where the explosion almost looks like a mushroom cloud i mean honestly it's it's insane um, and they're saying that um, wildlife are dying fish are dying and um, chemical smells, headaches, people are getting really, really sick from this. Um, so they've said all along, no, there's nothing to see, don't panic. There's the air, the air quality tests are fine, the water quality tests are fine. Well, quite clearly they're not. And the residents of East Palestine are saying, we've been abandoned. And they literally have been abandoned. The rail company have paid out so far something like a million dollars but that only equates to about $1,000 per family just for them to relocate during the evacuation. But now they've told them all to go back. They've told them that the water's safe. They've told them that the air quality is safe. And quite clearly, the residents are saying, no, they're not safe. I've got a couple of slides um, about surface water sampling as well, which just shows that things have been detected so you can see there that Mike DeWine, who's the uh, governor of Ohio, he's saying basically nothing to see. And then you can see on the surface water sampling, it does say that low levels of chemicals are seen. Now, you know, vinyl chloride is extremely poisonous. And from the next slide, you'll see the United States Environmental Protection Agency and, and I, I won't read out the slide. I just ask you to freeze the screen and particularly pay attention to the bits that I've surrounded in red, because it can you can see there the kind of hazardous materials like um, ethylene, glycol, monobutyl, ether, isobutylene. All of these um, substances have been released. This is really serious. And the residents are saying we are sick. You know, we are not very well. Please, will somebody take some notice? Because nobody is bothering, literally. The um, the governments are ignoring it. The states are ignoring it. But it's affecting many more states than Ohio. And some of the, um, some of the residents were saying that they only went in the shower. And when they came out of the shower, they were covered in a rash. Others are saying that their eyes are streaming. So this is really a story to, to keep an eye on because globally, the um, I mean, who, who knows what's in the soil? Who knows what's in the water? Um, nobody does. And the residents are saying they don't trust it, but they're also saying they don't trust the cover-up. They think this whole thing, that nobody's going to listen. And clearly from mainstream media, and, and I watched a reporter, one one lone alternative media reporter, and there were no camera crews, there were no satellite bands. 
there was no attention at all. And many of the residents are scared to go back. But what's interesting and what I would ask our audience to look, look for is that somebody suggested, and they only suggested this, so maybe we'd all like to check out, that Agenda 2030 would suggest that it would allow governments to seize polluted land and move residents into smart cities. Now, I haven't checked that out yet, but that would be an interesting phenomenon because in the States, well, all around the world, there are chemical leaks all over the place. And just as a point of interest, back in 2022, there was a film release called White Noise, and it was all about a train derailment and um, a chemical a chemical spill, a, a massive chemical spill. So people are saying, you know, well, is it is it that? Maybe not. So, but that's Ohio. And I would just say, please, could people keep an eye on, on Ohio? And we really do send our love because it's a big river, a big water supply affecting a huge, huge population. So um, our hearts go out to Ohio. Jumping back now to Europe, um, Thanks to Jesse Zerowell for sending me this from TNT because Eurostats have now released the latest data on excess mortality and it's quite frankly shocking. You can see there a map on the right hand side. You see it says uh, it rose by 19% in December 2022. Well, I can tell you that that's a huge, huge increase. Um, and if you see the dark areas there, you can see Ireland pretty badly affected too. And you can see Germany at 27% up. And back in July 2022, they're, they're blaming, would you believe, um, these excess, this excess mortality on the heat wave. So these Eurostats, um, you can see, yes, sorry, there's a, a slide there that you can just have a look at, which will tell you the statistics on all of the countries. So you can see the highest rate in Germany is 37%. Um, you can also see the, the blame there on, on the heat waves. So Italy and Sweden, apparently the data is not available. And of course, you won't see the data with the UK because we're no, no longer part of the European Union. So excess mortality all around, all around the globe. Jumping back to the dear MHRA, because we know how much I love to focus on the MHRA, um, there's a new Moderna bivalent COVID vaccine coming out, just as we thought that the whole COVID vaccine um, agenda was being scaled down. We see that Moderna, in fact, are scaling it up. What concerns me slightly on the right hand side, you'll see that it includes extensive safety and effectiveness data for the original vaccine clinical data from the bivalent original Omicron. So it would appear to me that the MHRA are just literally ticking a box to approve the original recipe. It's like having one recipe and then that recipe is slightly changed and they go, oh, well, don't worry about doing tests because we know the original recipe was OK. And we're sure that nothing's gone wrong with the next recipe. And what they're doing is they're just making more recipes, making more um, solutions, but not having any more clinical tests. That's how I understand it anyway. And sticking with the MHRA, um, a nice little article from FarmyWeb that says that the MHRA still are obviously intent, completely intent on becoming, I think, Mike, you might have to read it for me, the bottom paragraph there, because it's a little bit small, but uh, we are now releasing a 100 novel 
drugs a year. It's a bit behind the EU. But that little bottom paragraph, if you wouldn't, if, if one of you gentlemen wouldn't mind reading it out, because it, says, it tells you what the MHRA, thank you. Yeah, it says, according to the MHRA corporate plan 2018 to 2023, a post-Brexit priority is to remain a globally recognised regulatory agency and to continue to support innovation uh, that accelerates routes to market. The MHRA wants to be seen as a global unique concentration of expertise in data standards and regulation and its plan over the next few years is ambitious. Uh, the aspiration was reiterated in the MHRA de delivery plan 2021 to 2023 with a focus on becoming a truly world leading enabling regulator. Uh, enabling keyword, uh, accelerating routes to market. Uh, it's all pretty much about developing an industry rather than regulating an industry. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, 100%. And I thought, you know, in enabling regulator, I mean, clearly, it's what we've said all along. Um, so yeah, keep your eyes on the MHRA, because you know that I always will. Um, uh, in the news, of course, junior doctors are have now announced that they're going on strike for, for 72 hours in March. I think what everybody just needs to be aware of is a junior doctor is any doctor, all doctors below the role of consultant. So Anybody beneath the rank of consultant is considered to be a junior doctor. So that's what we have to look forward to. That's really going to help the NHS. But on the flip side, the RCN have decided that um, they're going to have intense pay talks and therefore their strike, they're going to put on hold for a moment. So the intensive talks are about to take place. So we'll see what happens. So junior doctors going out and nurses staying in. Um, and then we've also got jumping around in the NHS a little bit. We've got the bowel testing kits of which I've mentioned before. And they're up on the NHS website again, absolutely pleading with people, please, please send in your poo because we really need to look at your poo. Um, they're looking for what they call hidden blood, um, occult blood, blood that you can't see in your poo. Um, and they're saying, of course, that this is for people specifically, of course, at age 60 to 70, but they're going to lower the level. What a surprise. I would say, everybody, that if you're feeling well and you don't really want to give a test, then maybe you should consider your choices as to whether you want to or not. Um, and then staying with the subject of poo, sadly, I'm ever so sorry, everybody, but um, as well as sewage in our homes, as you know, I suffer from regularly, we've now got sewage in hospitals and we have a lot of incidents of sewage in hospitals. So at the moment, I think there were 456 sewage leaks and the article in The Guardian does go on to say that patients are paddling around in cancer wards and in A&E wards in sewage. So so it's all a little bit grim. Um, and so that's my little bit of NHS news. But also, um, it, these are my photos that you'll see next. I had to take a friend to a hospital in Cornwall. It was Liscard Hospital and it was in the outpatients department. And it does appear that COVID seems to become active when it sees the letters NHS, because as you can see, they don't seem to have received the memo. And we are still being asked to social distance in some hospitals so um i thought you might uh, might like to see that so that's my that's my nhs news um but of course we know too in the news that we can't get tomatoes cucumbers asda are now rationing food um, or some vegetables um but i heard uh, somebody say this morning or somebody tweet i think that whilst the shelves are empty in many of our supermarkets on peppers and lettuces and tomatoes and will be 
for the foreseeable future, because it will take about three weeks for the for it all to catch up. Apparently, the shelves in Europe are stocked full. So it, it's now being blamed on a Brexit thing. So if you can get tomatoes, you're very lucky. Yeah, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the food shortage, uh, the impending food shortage in extra. Uh, but now, uh, Debbie, uh, less pleasant topics. And uh, last week, um, you did mention that you were going to cover a particular topic this week. So let's get started on it. Look, my apologies, and I mentioned this in extra. I didn't think you were actually going to show it in the main news, but we will. Um, last week, uh, look, microchips are a big thing. And uh, everybody's been talking about, you know, are we going to get chipped in our hands? Are we going to get chipped in our bodies? What are medical devices? And I did say last week that there now is a vagina chip, a vagina on a chip. And I promised everybody that I would show people, not mine, but A, vagina on a chip. So I'm fulfilling my promise. Here is the vagina on a chip. Debbie, not to be outdone, uh, the males have a, a chip option as well. They certainly do, Mike. And, and I have actually put in my blog for this week lots of different chips that you can find. You might be uh, even a human body on a chip. So have a look at my blog. But yes, not to be outdone. Here's for the gentleman. Current methods of semen preparation involve high-speed centrifugation of semen in order to isolate the pellet of sperm at the bottom of a test tube. This method is not only unnatural, but may cause the delicate DNA strands to break into pieces. This new sperm selection microchip allows natural sperm selection without the need for damaging centrifugation. Only the best and fastest sperm are able to traverse specialized grooves and micropores configured to mimic the cervix and uterus. And it's these sperm selected in a natural manner they represent the healthiest specimens and are harvested for use of artificial insemination and IVF. 
more than 10,000 families in five years became apparent using microchip technology. If you want to take place among happy couples, please call us. Okay, Brian. There you have well, it. Well, I think we're starting to see that where, where they, this scientific community, but it's a political scientific community, um, they are going anywhere and everywhere. Their vision of the world, I don't know where, well, I do know where it leads unless we pull out of it and say no. But we just apologise to uh, uh, people who only got the music. The music was bad enough. You'll need to see the UK column. Yeah, um, watch, watch the video. Watch the video to get the full effect. Uh, but, yeah, thank, thank you for that, Debbie. Alex, uh, let's move to Brazil, I think, and uh, jabs. Yes, um, just to note in passing about the last two clips, if you put them together, then you're all the way to that notorious scene in Demolition Man, but not everyone will get that reference. Um, yes, Brazil actually has a bill back from 2020, which is still in the Senate uh, in uh, at the federal level, which has come back into reporting. It's being picked up on by some <clears throat> uh, of the freer media sites, probably because of the change of presidency. Um, and Lula uh, being keen on it, uh, which it's, it's uh, no, interestingly enough, it's draft or bill number 5555, uh, and it's amendments to the penal code. It's been in the works for a while. Uh, here's the offending bit, Article 285, uh, which has uh, two parts to it, or rather Article 1 of the bill would amend Article 285 of the existing criminal code in Brazil. And the parts that they are wishing to uh, amend would then have this wording that if you uh, refuse or uh, fail without ju just cause um, uh, in uh, uh, when when ordered to to re receive uh, obligatory vaccination for a child or adolescent. So as a parent or guardian, when a situation of public health emergency has been discussed and for this, you must watch. Of course, the uh, James Rogoski interview, which is by Debbie up on the homepage at the moment. If you do that on behalf of your child, you will have a one to three year jail sentence. And the, the part B of the amended article will be that if you yourself as an adult decline uh, obligatory vaccination in a public health emergency, you could go to jail for two to eight years and be fined. Uh, this is, uh, if we go back to the slide is something that uh, is currently on the plenary level, the full session of the Senate, and this is awaiting dispatch, which means transfer back to the other House of Parliament. It hasn't received signature yet and is not law, uh, but this isn't made up. There's a lot of questionable reporting that comes out of Brazil's, or rather is done in foreign countries about Brazil, but this one is genuine. They also carried out a public consultation on this law, and 10,711 Brazilians said, as of the 18th of February, that they wished for this change, and 130,888 said that they did not. Uh, that's the level of democracy that you get in Brazil at the moment. The Rio Times, reporting in English to foreigners and expats in Brazil, uh, reports that President Lula has done what Australia has done in the past, the no jab, no benefits. Uh, so... Uh, He's uh, on stage uh, with the health minister, Trindaji, um, and uh, Lula is uh, saying on stage that with this campaign, Zegutinha, uh, we are not going to play around. It's a question of science. And Lula actually said this as a sitting head of state. If there are 10 
COVID vaccines, if there are 50 COVID vaccines to take, I will take as many as necessary because I like my life. I think everyone has a duty to their children's life to take them at the right age. Those are his literal words. That means to the clinic, of course. Trindadje, who was standing next to Lula on stage, did not speak. But as Rio Times has mentioned here, he's previously, uh, she, she has previously been um, described as saying that vaccination, this is typical, pardon the, the frankness, but Hispanic lefty speak, that vaccination is a child's right. You see the same uh, rhetoric in Spain at the moment with regard to sexualization. The child has a perfect right and therefore uh, will send you to prison for up to three years if that bill gets through. Um, also in passing, it's worth noticing that uh, Peter McCulloch, the well-known Texas doctor who has a, a Substack blog that he now calls Courageous Discourse, has picked up on Die Welt, uh, a big title in Germany, uh, having this given detailed reporting now on Pfizer-BioNTech's fraudulent, as he calls it, uh, representation misrepresentations of the mRNA gene transfer injection. And I beg your pardon, it was McCulloch who forwarded that uh, or reblogged it. It was John Leake who runs Courageous Discourse who picked up on this. And although it's behind a paywall, those who read German can go through from that yellow hyperlink on, on screen to see that Die Welt is reporting to its very large readership now um, just what's been going on. Um, over to Switzerland, I thought it'd be worth focusing on a few things that are going on in Swiss legal news at the moment. Um, there has been a criminal complaint made against uh, the sitting head of state in Switzerland, as he was. Switzerland has a federal council of seven people, and each year one of them takes it upon themselves to be head of state for the year for the purposes of representing the country abroad. And uh, in mid-November, uh, because it's a calendar year uh, that they, they sit, so it was 2022 that Alain Berset uh, was the, the closest equivalent Switzerland had to a president at that time, uh, there was uh, a, um, a complaint uh, against Swiss Medic already, which is the Swiss equivalent of the MHRA, the drug regulator. And uh, then uh, we see that uh, the complaint was personalised to the head of state, Alain Berset, because he's uh, speaking on SRF, Swiss Public TV, in October. He said, if you get a VAX certificate, you can show that you're not infectious. Swanting Minuten reporting this said that this was a uh, falsch aussage, a false statement, and the Swiss don't like that kind of thing. So he's gone through the fine mechanics of Swiss law now. Uh, this has been picked up in the English-speaking world as well, uh, just recently, um, under the heading of kakistocracy, rule by turds, a well-known political uh, term for current era discourse. Uh, G. Edward Griffins Needs to Know uh, has reported that the Swiss Attorney General is investigating. Um, this complaint is mirrored by one by Pascal Najadi, very, very interesting man. His father co-founded the European Management Forum, which became the World Economic Forum. Uh, Najadi's father, who died in an unexplained assassination in Malaysia and who was in, in prison in Bahrain for many years, a real fighter and I think a humane man, uh, now that was the father. Pascal Najadi is a, a well-known investor uh, he succeeded at many things in life, who lives in Switzerland, multilingual. And Najadi, as reported here by Doctors Talk, even speaking one of his, I think, third or fourth language, French, is explaining that he went to the Swiss police to make complaints because uh, he was uh, jabbed, triple jabbed, in fact. And then he watched Rob Rose, the uh, Dutch member of the European Parliament, asking Janine Small of Pfizer 
in the, the session uh, in the European Parliament last October of the COVID committee there, asking whether they actually tested for their claim um, that, or, or for, the, for, the, uh, for the effect or not that it would stop you being infectious. And of course, Janine Small famously said, no, 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 chuckle, chuckle, we all were working at the speed of science. Najadi was so incensed that he put his considerable mind and resources to the task, and he describes in that French, inter French language interview here how the Swiss uh, police were very, very timid about this, but they followed due procedure. Um, he's also spoken about this to Rainer Fulmich, so we'll just show on screen briefly that he spoke in January twice uh, in the impromptu format that ICIC run criminal complaint against the Swiss president, Berset, and it's been updated since. Um, another much less known but redoubtable uh, um, uh, Swiss campaigner, um, Albert Knobel, uh, has told uh, Wissensgeist, uh, a kind of equivalent of UK column in Switzerland, that no sooner had there been a change of head of state to a new uh, president of the Federal Council, Ignacio Cassis, than uh, Knobel decided to launch a complaint against him as well. And he took cameras along to see this happen. Switzerland isn't perfect by many means, but it did, <clears throat> did actually allow the receipt of these complaints uh, for the false statements. And we see these wanted posters with Bessé and Cassis, who succeeded him uh, as a mock-up, of course, but that's, that's what the campaigner has, has put out there. Um, the Neue Zürcher Zeitung in Zurich is reporting other things more troubling to the Swiss establishment even than that. This is about the treatment of whistleblowers. The uh, federal prosecuting uh, authority, the Bundesanwaltschaft, um, has decided to go after a whistleblower. If you look at the, one, the last but one line on screen, you will see that they are using in their German report the English word whistleblower. Uh, this was the chap who let uh, uh, the press know that Credit Suisse were secretly uh, hosting accounts of uh, certain people, including Russian tycoons, who supposedly were the subject of EU and Western worldwide uh, bans and sanctions that Switzerland had decided to participate in. But look, when we get to English, all of a sudden we don't see that a whistleblower is being prosecuted. That's too, uh, our delicateers can't take that. So within Switzerland, it's fine to say it, but Reuters carries it as Swiss federal prosecutors have launched criminal proceedings targeting the perpetrators of a leak of information on many thousands of accounts. So it's all geared towards making it look like these people were hackers. Um, the uh, Tagus um, um, Anzeiger in uh, Switzerland, another leading paper, paper uh, has said that this could be an absolute catastrophe for Switzerland's image. Uh, on screen is Alisher Usmanov, a Russian tycoon. And they're noting here that uh, in Germany, the Credit Suisse uh, whistleblowing led to the the um, um, the uh, procedures, measures being taken against Usmanov, who was evading the sanctions this way. In Switzerland, they target the whistleblower. Uh, that's the state of Switzerland here. Meanwhile, Swiss conditions continue to be very troublesome. So just last month, uh, Infosperber reported that the canton of Geneva, which of course is the seat of the WHO and uh, very much is the uh, uh, the standard bearer for Switzerland's image abroad has got prison conditions like this with mattresses all over the floor. This, this photo is actually years old, I think a decade old. Things haven't gotten any better since. Uh, this is the prison of Chandolon, which is, uh, for many years has been massively uh, overpopulated. The canton's doing nothing about it. Um, and this is uh, very much uh, concerning them. Uh, the report goes on to say that you actually, by Swiss law and cantonal law, get more room in a dog's kennel than you do in prison cells in Switzerland. And this comes to mind because of the interview with Trevor Kitchen, 
which we did recently. And it's quite a long segment from me. I'll just hand back perhaps briefly to Brian, because you interviewed Trevor and the work he managed to escape the worst of what the Swiss justice system could throw at him. I put these things together really to show that not all is well in Switzerland. I have a bit more about Switzerland before we go on. Okay, um, thank, thank you for that, Alex. Well, yes, of course, that was an eye-opener eye for, for me, talking um, to him about his experiences when he'd uh, whistleblown on strange events within the uh, banking and investment system in Switzerland. And of course, it broke apart the image that many of us have or had here in UK that Switzerland was quite an upstanding country in many respects and had a form of democracy that we might admire in many respects. But what came out of the interview was brutal treatment of anybody who dared challenge corruption in the Swiss banking system. And it's not just you, Brian, who is saying that Switzerland's squeaky clean image has now been threatened because Swiss Info, an official uh, or mainstream site, has fallen down the same to their horror. And the uh, still that's shown on screen here is uh, people trying to protect the privacy of FIFA officials as they get frog marched out by the police in a corruption arrest uh, some years ago. But the, the ranking um, in Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index is that Switzerland is still supposedly one of the better performers. It's scored seventh for the second year in a row, but they've scored worse than ever for nepotism uh, and for in its overall score marks. They don't get scored per sector, but the overall score marks are, are lower, even though the ranking is still the same. And uh, the uh, write-up continues that Switzerland's clean image has been tarnished by corruption scandals. Uh, there's, there's many in, in, uh, described here, we won't get into them. Uh, but that's the, the, the situation with Switzerland. And a Swiss viewer noticed that we recently carried Swiss graffiti uh, with some philosophy on it. And we've got another example of that that's come in now uh, from another viewer, uh, which is this one here. Uh, the viewer says that on a house in the countryside in Switzerland a few years ago, he saw Zehen verdunkelt nachdenken erhelt, which means that, uh, well, it's hard to translate, but um, just just looking will not enlighten you, but perceiving, see, seeing and thinking about what you see uh, is enlightening. And so the Swiss know very well that not all is as it seems. The other thing I have to cover in the final few minutes is the issue of juries. Very hot since Neil Oliver was castigated by Dr. Matthew Sweet and others uh, for the uh, platform that he's given to Will Keat and others to talk about annulment by jury. That's the British term historically. Jury nullification, as the Americans call it. Uh, first of all, to establish that this is not something restricted to the even to the English speaking world. It goes back to around 1000 AD in writing well, well before Magna Carta and independently of the British Isles, the Emperor Conrad II of Germany, Italy and Burgundy said in his legislation that none shall be deprived of his estate, think about sanctions such as those on Graham Phillips now, unless according to the custom of our ancestors and the judgment of his peers. That's the bedrock of the jury system. Since our last segment on jury nullification, people have sent some thoughtful things which we will cover very quickly. Uh, one Scottish viewer said, does it also apply to Scotland? And um, he's noticing that, uh, in fact, he's now a contender for the Scottish National Party leadership. Hunza Yousaf was Scottish Justice Minister and was in the lead, uh, British Isles wide, in stopping jury trials under cover of um, COVID necessity. Uh, and this, the viewer who writes in is one of many who's involved in a juryless trial. This is happening more and more in England as well. Another viewer, Anthony, wrote this, that too many people have, and I agree with Anthony on this, have thought that uh, I can just rely 
uh, on a judge deciding uh, that my argument's valid, that you can't overrule common law by statute. And so are you, UK Column, not at risk of lumping this all together and giving people poor advice? I completely understand this sentiment. Um, and you know, the, the, the viewer himself is no legal slacker and understands that all of what's claimed to be law is shot through with philosophy. So uh, there's uh, much to be said there. The uh, viewer continues, in practice, while juries may sometimes decide not to convict, they cannot be relied upon. Again, I agree with Anthony. Uh, the Hyde Park Four uh, had a conviction, uh, or at least two of them did very recently. This was despite the jury having been given clear evidence that it was police action that caused the problems that day at Hyde Park. And despite being told by one of the defendants, who was pro se, representing himself, that the jury had the power to quit them all. We're about to hear in the clip that follows, anyone who is a court officer, like a lawyer you pay, will not say this. But anyone acting pro se in his own right can say it. That's how Clive Ponting got cleared in the General Belgrano official secrets trial. Um, more details are set out in the film Subject Access by Heiko Ku. Right, now with all of that said, uh, this is uh, uh, the uh, final position that our viewer Anthony came to, that while what you and Neil Oliver are saying may be how things should be, they are not. Agreed, Anthony. And I'm writing this note solely because I'm concerned that too many people may be misled into thinking that they are the way things are until they discover the reality too late in court. Well, I'm glad to take this opportunity to say UK Column does not offer legal advice. We're quite clear on that. However, those within the system uh, do have nothing but legal advice to offer, uh, and they are uh, beholden to their guilds, ultimately, although they may be doing the best they can within that system. But just to show that we are freer of that, we do not uh, give people legal advice, but we do tell people how things should be. That's the whole role of dissident journalism. Uh, and I put this on my Telegram channel very recently. This is uh, just a, a pot shot of um, a potted um, uh, uh, snapshot of, of the uh, times that we've covered annulment by jury or jury nullification. Uh, I think that will be in the show notes too. 2016, 2019, 2022. We've talked about it in detail. We've said that it's been the bedrock of English liberty and has applied to Scotland too. Um, but it hasn't, it hasn't pleased everyone that this is coming into focus. So a gentleman who uh, is a qualified trial lawyer in the jurisdiction of England and Wales, who goes by the, uh, the, the brand name of the Black Belt Barrister, has been asked by his viewers uh, on the back of this uh, GB News Neil Oliver interest and will keep being targeted by some. He's been asked to give his view on jury nullification, which is the American but more, more commonly recognised term for what we call annulment by jury. Uh, here's what the Black, Barrister, Black Belt Barrister has to say. We can only fit in the first two minutes of what he says. Uh, the, the rest will be an extra time. And just like in main news here, we're going to treat his argument decently and not have a right go at him. Let's listen to the how circumscribed this barrister's perhaps well-intentioned uh, discourse is on jury nullification. Jury nullification has got this air of mystery around the term because many people say that we as barristers can't talk about it, which is strictly correct. So why am I talking about it? Well, this isn't a courtroom. This is my gym here. Uh, if it were a courtroom and during COVID we were doing trials in lockdown and so this effectively became a courtroom from where I was uh, practicing law, 
I would not be allowed to mention jury nullification. Not that we would have had a jury in here or remotely like this. Um, I was doing civil trials, but nonetheless. If you are in a trial as a barrister, you cannot mention jury nullification because it would be contempt of court to do so, because it would tempt the jury into making a decision that goes against the law and the findings of evidence, which is against their oath that they take as a member of the jury. So with that out of the way, let's explain what it means and then it'll probably become clearer as to why we cannot talk about it and why it's contempt of court. So when you are called upon to do jury service and you are in the courtroom and let's say the defendant hasn't given any reasonable objection to you sitting on that jury, you then take an oath before you can carry out your duty as a member of the jury. That oath is as follows. I swear by God of your faith, or I solemnly, sincerely and truly declare and affirm, which is the affirmation, that I will faithfully try the defendant and give a true verdict according to the evidence. So that's the key part there. According to the evidence, you are making a promise to the court and either to your faith or an affirmation to the court that you are going to try the defendant only according to the evidence. And what this essentially means is you cannot try the defendant, i.e. come to a guilty or not guilty verdict, based on anything else that you've heard or read about. You cannot research the case. You cannot talk to other people about the case. The judge will be very clear and very strict with you that you must not discuss this outside of your jury number and outside of court. In fact, there have been cases where jury members have been brought to prosecution for contempt of court and been sentenced to six months in prison because they've revealed what was being discussed inside the jury room after when they were outside of court. Time is short, gentlemen, but my question to you is, in the first half of the Black Belt Barrister's treatment of the subject, how many statutes did you hear him refer to? Directly. Yes, directly. How many statutes did he cite? I, I have to say, I don't know. I didn't pick None. that up. None. Why would that be? It's because contempt of court is the judge making the law up. Contempt of court is the judge saying, you are a criminal because I say so, because of the way you behaved in front of my nose. Uh, we have covered, and we'll put it on the slide now, uh, we've covered in episode two of A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution, for which go to ukcolumn.org and then series. We covered this, that uh, very senior US judges have said we, we should put paid to this notion that uh, criminal contempt of court uh, should be allowed to stand because it's the judge saying, I don't like how you behaved, go directly to jail without the involvement of statute. Much more we could say, and we will in extra time, uh, but we'll just show that the Black Belt Barristers' uh, learned viewers have actually picked him up on this. So taking this at face value, it's members of a barrister's chamber, so on his own professional rank, who are saying Bushel's case, popularly known as William Penn, because he's a much better known figure, he founded Pennsylvania, a dissident of his day, who was put on trial for uh, questioning the king's absolute authority in public uh, in a so-called unlawful assembly. The nuts and bolts of that is that the jurors were told by the judge in what we now call directing, which is now in law in Scotland and, and France, by the way, the judge says increasingly, you will find this guy guilty because I say so, because the law says so uh, in some statute. The jury said, no, no, he's not guilty. We, we faithfully uh, uh, judge the evidence here um, and we don't like this. Uh, it's, it's not right. That's the whole point of a jury, to be emotional. I, I don't uh, balk from saying that. Uh, we will not find him guilty. So off they are without uh, in a cold uh, room without food and water. And this is commemorated by a plaque. And 
I don't think the Black Belt Barrister even shows any knowledge of knowing uh, signs of knowing this. It used to be taught to every school child across the English-speaking world. So if you ever find yourself facing down an angry judge in the matter, you just need to say to them calmly, have you forgotten William Penn? Um, other commentators have said this, uh, apparent jury nullification, all cases I've heard of, is where the jury concluded that finding the guy guilty on the evidence presented, i.e. complying with their oath, would be bad, well, good law, but bad justice, miscarriage of justice. That's the whole point of having the jury because they are not officials of the court. I know that they're sworn to the court, as the barristers said, but they are the people. That's the whole point. Otherwise, what's the point? As one of the commentators said in this video, what's the point of, uh, of having this? Um, and Radman has more detail on the juror's oath. The, jur the jury did not promise mechanically as if they were robots or computer programs to judge according to their, what they're told by the legal professionals in court. They swear, swear to judge faithfully and according to the evidence. It's their assessment. That's what the word truly, the adverb in that that's oath means. We're out of time for main news, but that's the bare bones of where the Black Belt Barrister here is sincerely wrong. I will grant him that he's giving free legal advice, he's qualified in that domain, and he doesn't want people having nasty surprises. And like, um, as, as Anthony said as well in his email to us, you could, if you are um, naive about this, find yourself convicted. We continue to maintain, though, that just as it was in, in the Stuart uh, days of misrule, jurors are the ultimate protection precisely because they say no, even if they, will, they know that they will have consequences to face. Yes. OK, thank you for that, Alex. I'll just say, um, running um, in parallel with that, my mind is taken back to a court case in Portsmouth many years ago. Uh, the case had a family um, court case background, but the judge openly directed the jury as to what decision they should make. And uh, that was clearly astonishing to watch. There we go. Yes, Alex, uh, let's, just, uh, let's just end with one final slide. We will, yes. So in 2023, according to this meme, it's the normal people who throw up their hands in horror and say aliens are here. And the 2023 conspiracy theorists say, no, they're not. Yeah, indeed. Right. Okay. There. Alex and Debbie, thank you very much for joining us. Big thank you to all of our supporters, viewers and listeners. Thank you for joining us today. And a huge thanks to everybody that's been supporting the UK column because you are allowing us to grow and uh, increase, increase our output. And as we've promised you, we have got good news coming up. So um, that will be in due course. It may be in a, in a couple of weeks or so, but we will have good news for the viewers and all the supporters because we could have only achieved what we've achieved with your help and support. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.